All right, we've got a great interview for you guys today on the Young Turks. Uh, not a big deal, just a presidential candidate. Uh, Larry Lessig, a Harvard Law professor and current Democratic presidential candidate, he joins us in the studio. Larry, great to have you here. Great to be here, Cenk. All right, so now, Larry, you're in the middle of a presidential run, and boy, it seems fascinating. <laughs> fascinating <laughs> is a word you could use to describe <laughs> this. Not the one I experienced, but okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, look, it's been a hell of a ride. Uh, you got in first as a referendum candidate saying, hey, this is uh, the overall uh, most important issue is equality, uh, and that includes the equality of the vote, and hence, uh, we've got to get money out of politics. Uh, and then you got, you basically got a hard time for your idea of resigning if you wind up getting your mission accomplished. So, uh, are you here to say you've changed that plan today? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, what I want to do is to talk about the most important issue facing this democracy today, which is that we have a corrupted representative democracy that doesn't reflect what the American people want. It's corrupted because of the way we fund campaigns. It's corrupted because of the way we gerrymander political districts, so we have this ridiculously polarized House. It's corrupted because we suppress the vote of African Americans by these ridiculous structures that make it hard for them to vote. Okay, all of these are the ways in which it's corrupted. Corruption is the disease. And equality in each of these areas, equality of citizens, would be the solution. I want to have a way to talk about that. So that's why I launched the referendum campaign. I thought we could rally people to this idea if we could talk about it. But of course, what I like stupidly didn't recognize was um, nobody wants to talk about this. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that government doesn't work. You know, those candidates aren't, don't want to get up there and promise the moon and then admit, hey, the rocket can't get off the ground. Um, so rather than talk about that, they want to talk about, you know, well, what do you mean you want to resign? So every time I'd get on television and have, you know, five minutes to talk about this idea, four of those or three of those minutes were like, well, you're going to resign. What do you mean you're going to resign? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to resign after we pass the most important democracy legislation in 50 years. Yeah, then I'm going to resign because that's what I'm here for. But nobody could hear the first part, the only important part. So it's like, fine, you win. Democratic Party won't take me seriously because I've said I'm going to resign. I will not resign. I give up that promise and now let's talk seriously about this issue. You know, it, it's kind of funny when you step back for a second, they're like, damn it, we're going to make you a politician. That's right. <laughs> I know you came in as a non-politician and all you cared was, hey, can we fix our democracy? They're like, no, okay, you must stay in power, okay? Right. <laughs> okay it's so right. weird, it's like, you know, it's like the one field where if you say, hey, look, this is all I want to do, I just want to fix this thing, they're like, we don't trust you. You don't want all power in the world. You must be crazy. Okay, fine. I want all power in the world for a time to fix this democracy, to stay there, to make sure the fix sticks. And, uh, and you know, I got a lot of other ideas. Like, there is not an internet candidate in this race right now, right? There's, in the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton's not going to talk about the internet because that reminds people of emails. So there's not going to be any discussion from her. And Bernie Sanders, God love him. Um, you know, I love a million of the things he's talking about, but he's not an internet kid. He doesn't understand any of these issues. So there are many uh, issues I'd love to have a chance to talk about. So fine, make my day. Now I have to talk about all the issues, including the one that is the most important, getting us this democracy back. Okay, so, um, so you're going to go the full term. Now, of course, one of the ideas was, hey, if, if they know I'm going to resign, uh, and, and I won't do anything else until I get this done, get money out of politics, right? And, and the rest of the agenda you just laid out. Uh, that was supposed to create pressure on them to act right away. So do you, do you worry that that pressure is now relieved a little bit if you do win? No, I don't think so because, you know, the history of American presidents is the banner legislation that they say they're going to pass. Congress basically gives that president, whether it's, you know, Obama got the biggest stimulus package uh, since the New Deal within uh, three weeks of getting elected, um, mm -hmm. uh, being uh, inaugurated. Um, he got uh, Obamacare within uh, a year and a half. So, um, you know, every other president too, when they say this is the issue that I want to do, you know, Congress uh, works around to give it to them. And I think with this one, it's going to take enormous pressure because look, the changes that I want to make are changes that radically change power in Washington and radically change Congress, right? And uh, what we've got to do to be able to have the mandate to do that is to have a discussion in the public 
about why this democracy is so broken and how this change could actually make it so it's a democracy. And when it's framed as an argument about, you know, the equality of citizens, I don't know what the other side says. Like if I say, no, no, our problem is we have an unequal democracy. Citizens are not equal. We don't have equal power to represent our democracy. What are they going to say? No, 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 you shouldn't have equal power to represent our democracy. These people deserve more power than you in a representative democracy. That doesn't fly in America. So I think we could actually have a mandate strong enough to say to Congress, fine, you've You've messed it up over the last 40 years. We're going to fix it. We're going to get a representative democracy. And I'm going to hang around long enough to see at least one election where we get a representative democracy. And we'll see what we can do after that. So in the beginning, they had told you before you entered the race, hey, listen, if you're going to enter the race, uh, Professor Lessig, you're going to need a, a good amount of money for us to take you seriously. Because there's going to be hundreds of people who actually could behind the scenes apply to be the Democratic president, etc. So you raised a million dollars, which is what more than how many of the candidates? Well, we raised a million dollars. That's more than two, probably three, counting our pledges of the Democrats. More than five of the Republicans. So, you know, a non-politician steps in, raises money that's competitive in the field. Um, we thought that would be all it took for them to say, "Okay, fine, you're a serious candidate." But you know, once I announced after raising a million dollars, we got crickets from the Democratic Party. This was the biggest surprise in the campaign. Um, uh, you know, I um, um, had uh, really strong uh, support. Y you got me into this race, but everybody thought once um, once uh, we hit the number, Democratic Party would say welcome. Uh, they didn't say anything. They didn't put a press release out or anything. And once they didn't put a press release out welcoming into the party, the polls were like, well, this guy's not running. Like, who is this guy? So they wouldn't include mm -hmm. me in polls. So it was this catch-22. I have to get 1% in the polls to be in the debates, but I'm not in the polls to get the 1% to be in the debates. Um, and so we had this incredible fight to get them to even acknowledge me as a candidate. You know, the insiders, they get to be, uh, you know, up on that stage, but somebody on the outside who actually does more than the insiders has to fight like hell even to get a telephone call a response, a returned. I, you know, I had this call scheduled with um, the chair of the Democratic Party, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Um, she canceled the call, uh, said they'd rescheduled, never rescheduled. Um, but so she said that she's talked to you, right? They have, she said at a press conference before the debate that, um, uh, that uh, they've, t they've spoken to me. It was unclear from what she said whether she said she's spoken to me or they've spoken to me. No one's spoken to me, right? I so have tried to have a talk. It's not true. Plain, this is simply not true. But, you know, the point is, I, you know, I get what's going on. You know, the Democratic Party, uh, Democratic National Committee is not trying to figure out what the Democrats want. They're trying to steer in a particular direction. That's fine. That's the way politics works. But all I'm saying is, they ought to give me a fair shot, a fair shot to be able to present this position. Because we know not a single person on that debate stage said the thing that I would be saying if I were on that debate stage. And, you know, uh, Matt Iglesias has a great piece today in Vox about the hopelessness of the Democratic Party. And I think we ought to be open to ideas that might give us a chance to actually be competitive again. So, uh, look, I'm going to say something that sounds really grand here, but I, I need you to understand for those of you not familiar with Larry Lessig, that um, he is the godfather of this movement to get money out of politics, to fix the corruption in our system. And I think that the democracy at the national stage is so corrupted that it flat out doesn't exist, right? And, and the reason I say that is, among other things, a Princeton study that shows there's no correlation between what the public thinks and what the government does, no correlation. That means your democracy is dead. Now, I think it exists at the state level, but not at the national level. And for that movement, honestly, he's a he's a player that is along the lines of Susan B. Anthony for the suffragettes, MLK. It's not to say that you're MLK, okay? It's <laughs> I know that that's way way overstating him. For the but for this movement, he is the leader of that movement. And so, for a person that has done this, and everybody knows it, it's not like they don't know it at CNN. It's not like they don't know it at DNC, right? So for them to exclude him is unbelievable. But it is in some ways though, Professor Lessig, the most believable thing. Because when it comes to money in politics, they all profit from it and billions of dollars. So this election, they're slated to spend about $10 billion across all of the races, right? So now a lot of that money goes to TV. So somehow you don't wind up in a TV debate. <laughs> so that's kind of the invisible hand of the market saying, so how does that invisible hand work? 
Yeah, you know, my problem is I feel like the last naive guy in the room, right? Mm -hmm. Because I genuinely believe that people want to do the right thing here, right? And I genuinely believe that um, there's not a conspiracy going on. Mm -hmm. try so I got into this believing that if we could rally people, um, we would be allowed to at least make a case. Um, and I hold on to that naive belief because how do you get up in the morning if you don't have some hope, some belief that there's a reason to fight? Because if what you're saying is true, there's no reason to fight. You know, you, know, you, you create the biggest news network um, because there's a thing called the internet that they haven't figured out how to control yet. Like once the lobbyists reverse the network neutrality victory, then they'll be able to control you. But you know, you, you're in a space of hope because you've produced something nobody else produced. But this is like, you know, a small part of the mix out there. And if it's true what you're saying, then, you know, I should just go back to teaching contract law because, uh, because <laughs> what, what the hell else is there? Okay, so let's but let's break it down a little further because of course I believe there's hope. First of all, real quick, in our space in, in media, uh, latest Comscore reports show us uh, Young Turks doubling MSNBC online and eight times the size of Fox News online. So wow. uh, now, and and to the point about another candidate in the race, Bernie Sanders, who we both like, um, you know, people keep asking, where did he come from? Where did he come from? Because what they're actually saying is, I don't get it. On TV, we gave him no coverage. How is he this popular? How is he doing yep. so well in the polls? Yep. And they don't get it. It's because the internet is where a, a lot Absolutely. of people are getting their information. They're used to controlling everything. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that they control everything is they hold the debates. The debates cost about $5 million a piece, right? Somebody's got to pay for that. Who pays for it? The networks pay for it. So when the networks pay for it, they control it completely. So if CNN, MSNBC, Fox News are going to get hundreds of millions of dollars from political advertising, and here's a guy who's threatening to kill uh, the goose that lays the golden eggs. It's not a surprise that you're left off in that regard. But, uh, but I think there can be pressure created uh, to break that system. But, but let's break it down a little further. First off, what you just said a little while ago actually clarifies things. So sometimes, it's, it's, I never believe in a conspiracy. I don't think there's smoke filled rooms. I don't think they tell Anderson Cooper, hey, don't invite Larry Lessig, right? Um, but. Sometimes it's a little more crystal clear. So DNC says they talked to you. It turns out they didn't. Uh, the DNC says they're open to you. It turns out they're not. So that is a very direct way that the establishment says you're not welcome. Yeah, that's right. And and I can understand why they say I'm not welcome because you know they've got a debate. They don't, what is this crazy guy from the outside coming? What what kind of trouble is he going to cause? So I understand why they do it. What I don't understand. Is is how they justify it to themselves. I mean, and so uh, um, you know, I, I all I'm trying to get is a chance to make this argument, to be able to to stand for a principle that I actually think um, Democrats ought to believe in, right? And and if I had that chance, I'm not interested in getting on stage and trashing Hillary or trashing Bernie. That's that's not what this is about. This is about making people focus on the dead elephant in the room, right? We've got. A democracy that, as you exactly your point, does not work. And so when they stand there and they promise single payer health care, they say we're going to get, you know, increased social security, we're going to raise the taxes on the rich, we're going to break up the banks and 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 take on Wall Street and pass Glass Steagall. I'm sitting there on the one hand thinking, oh my God, <laughs> that would be great. That would be amazing. And the other hand thinking, are you kidding? Are you what, what are you talking about? So I was on Bill Maher and, and you know. Bill Maher um, had a really, you know, he's a strong Bernie supporter, but I had a really aggressive interview with Bernie where he's basically, um, you know, cornering Bernie on the fact that what Bernie's talking about is going to be so incredibly expensive. How do you pay for this? And who are you going to have to tax? You can't just increase the taxes of the 1%. You're going to have to. So it was a kind of an uncomfortable interview to watch. But afterwards, I said to Bill, you know, you're just missing the point. The question isn't whether America can pay for what Bernie's talking about. Of course we can. If we can spend a trillion dollars to fight a losing war in Iraq, we can spend a trillion dollars to make America great again, right? That's not the issue. The issue is, how does he think he's going to get any of those things passed until he takes on this corruption first? And what he is not doing, as much as I love the guy and what he's pushing for substantively, he is not explaining to the American people how and why we need to fix this democracy first. We had a democratic debate. The words public funding 
were not mentioned in this debate. Not once, not a single member of that Democratic said, you know, the most obvious thing that we could do tomorrow. They all say things, like, they didn't even say this, but they see things like, oh my gosh, we're gonna, we're gonna pass a constitutional amendment. Now you and I, who have been fighting for the only path to get an amendment, which is, you know, through an Article V convention, that of course is nowhere even close to their radar. They're talking about Congress proposing an amendment. And, you know, people like you and I said, are you nuts? There is no way two-thirds of Congress could propose an amendment to deal with the Citizens United issue. So, again, as much as I deeply respect Bernie Sanders and his track record of progressivism, I don't just say that blithely. I, I absolutely I know you believe do. Absolutely. it, right? But he, it's, he, I'm afraid that he does not have a great understanding of how that solution would come to pass. So he had the best line of the debate. And he, to be fair to him, he's the only one that mentioned uh, the money in politics at all in the debate, which is amazing. Eleven times he mentioned it. Eleven right. times. Right. Uh, but for, he, when you get into the nitty gritty of this year, and like I said, he had the best line. He said, "You know, uh, Wall Street doesn't regulate Congress. Con uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Congress doesn't regulate Wall Street. Wall Street regulates Congress." That's absolutely true. So he knows. Well, that's. But then you got to attack that first. If you don't attack that. Then Wall Street's going to regulate no, Congress. No, and you're he, not going to get anything done. That was a great line, but I actually think the better line. He said, "Quote: uh, We got to realize nothing is going to happen until we deal with the campaign finance." And I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, Bernie, exactly right. So why aren't we saying?" The first thing we got to deal with is this corrupted system. And here's what we could do on day one. We could pass citizen-funded elections. We could radically change the way campaigns are funded. We could change the gerrymandered system so that instead of politicians picking voters, voters could begin to pick politicians. We could do that on day one. But these solutions are, are just nothing they want to talk about because the Consultants, I think, tell them, you know, you're not going to be able to win a election like, talking about those sorts of things. You've got to be promising the moon. But the problem with promising the moon is when they get there, turns out there's no will to actually take on the corruption. If you're going to go to the moon, you've got to build a spaceship first. And then I've got to <laughs> know, do you have a good plan for building a spaceship? That's right. right. If you tell me, ah, and you pull a Trump and you say, I'll figure out foreign yeah. policy when I get into the <laughs> office. You're like, no, no, you can't do that with a spaceship. You've got to build it right. So. Uh, is, I want to go back to the invisible hand for a second because you hear they exclude you from the first Democratic debate, and then Anderson Cooper, CNN doesn't ask a single question about uh, getting money out of politics when it polls as one of the top two concerns of the American people in every single poll. Okay, the economy and getting money out of politics and the corruption of politics. Recent Bloomberg poll: eighty percent of Republicans say it's corrupting our politics. Eighty percent of Republicans. 83% of Democrats, right? Not a single question about right. it, right? So they have to talk about email scandals. <laughs> they have to talk about over and over yeah, again, right. right? So do you think that that's an active decision they're making or if not, how I don't think I don't think they told Anderson Cooper, "Hey, don't tell don't talk about money out of politics cuz that'll cost us billions of dollars." Yeah, so, so how do they all know <laughs> that's to talk about it? See, what drives me nuts is that there's a conventional wisdom that as most of these conventional wisdoms has no actual basis in fact. The conventional wisdom is Americans don't care about this issue. They say they care about it, but they're lying. <laughs> so they say 80% of, you know, 85% of Democrats, 80% of Republicans say this is a corrupted system, we need to fix it, but in fact they don't care about it. So when Anderson Cooper thinks, what am I going to talk about the most important issues, um, I'm going to talk about, you know, the issues people really care about. Hillary Clinton's email. That's what they really care about. Right? <laughs> I mean, and you're like, preposterous. I mean, you know, what's so amazing about that exchange is the whole audience erupts with like outrage that he's asking the question. He's standing there saying, no, 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 the American people want to hear about this. And you're like, really? Really, the American people? They spent more time, the media spent more time talking about Hillary Clinton's email than the total amount of time that Bernie Sanders was talked about in mainstream media. I mean, it's ridiculous. So they have this perception of what the American people care about, and they impose it on the American people. But here's the reality. This is why they think this. The American people care about this issue. We did a poll found 96% of Americans thought it important to reduce the influence of money in politics. But the American people don't think there's anything that can be done about it. 91% said we, that there was no way to solve the problem of money in politics. So you put those numbers together, the American people are just resigned. They just think, you know, this is like death, taxes, and a corrupt government. That's like the modern version of Franklin's aphorism. Um, but, you know, if you give them an actual picture of what they could do, I know. 
they're going to, this will break out an extraordinary amount of energy to try to reform that, which is why it is so important for those candidates to begin to explain to the American people there is something we can do on day one. Not, we're going to sit around waiting for a Supreme Court justice to die so we can appoint a new Supreme Court justice, or, yeah, I'm going to get Congress to pass an amendment, send an amendment out to, uh, to the states to, uh, to ratify amendment. Not these completely useless strategies for dealing with this on day one, but things they could do on day one. Things that, you know, they've begun to talk about, which has changed the way elections are funded, and things that not a single one of them is talking about, which is changing the way Congress gets constituted so it's not this polarized, dysfunctional institution that it is right now. Look, I, I don't talk about gerrymandering much, and I, I think uh, getting money out of politics and in other ways, public financing, uh, you know, in my view, uh, corporate personhoods is an issue, uh, corporations having uh, human rights is, I find, preposterous. But uh, to if we did talk about gerrymandering, that is a debate you would win with maybe 99% of the American exactly right. people. Right? And, and boy, I so mean, how, what, how can they possibly argue, yeah, the politicians should pick their voters. Right, but we this should make up these districts that look like this so I win all the time. Exactly. It is an unwinnable argument. Yeah, and, and what's so striking is it's unwinnable, and yet 90% of Americans don't realize Congress could fix it tomorrow. 90% of Americans think, to the extent they think at all about it, well, this is something that's done in the states, it happens every 10 years, you've got to take over the state legislatures. That's wrong. The Constitution explicitly reserves to Congress the power to set the rules for the selecting of Congress. And Congress has historically had radically different rules. So at the founding, there were multi-member districts. And if you have a multi-member district with ranked choice voting, you know, let's say you have five uh, representatives you're picking in a district with ranked choice voting, if you represent 20% of that district, you're going to get a representative, right? You, your view is going to have a representative. So instead of this system where we have 90 seats, it's probably, you know, uh, some people say, uh, 538 says it's only about 50 seats. But let's say, let's be optimistic, 90 seats competitive in the United States House, mm -hmm. which means 345 seats, which are not competitive, safe seats, which means if you're the minority in those 345 seats, uh, then... Um, you don't have a representative because your representative doesn't care about you. You can never possibly matter to that representative, which means uh, 89 million Americans don't have representation in our Congress. That is that should be an outrage. Like if you know when when African Americans didn't have representation, took us you know 100 years to finally get around to dealing with this problem. But that was an outrage. But it's nowhere close to 89 million Americans. 89 million Americans don't have a representative in Congress, and if we could change that. In one statute, Fair Vote, an amazing nonpartisan organization that's been working on this for decades, has a proposal where one vote, we could change this. We could create districts that made it possible for people to have representation. And what that would do is destroy this polarizing amplification of the existing house. You wouldn't have, you know, 30 crazies who could basically block the ability of government to function because you would have a much more representative. It would be a Congress that looks like America. And let me tell you, I love America. It is a much more attractive place than the United States House of Representatives makes it look. So look, it's, I'm going to reiterate that gerrymandering is at most a number two issue for me. But if you were to come in and you were to win and you were to just change the gerrymandering, that alone would be the most historic presidency. Because I, I, I need people to understand this. It isn't about the person, right? It's if you can get institutional change, that's so much more important than winning on any single policy because the institutional change affects all policies. Yeah. So hey, when President Obama says, oh, Obamacare, I did historic this and I did historic financial reform, please, on the historic financial reform. But okay, but no, if you had changed the placards, remember the placards changed? If you had changed the system, then you could have won on so many fronts. On gerrymandering alone, if you can get that done, it would be actually historic. It yeah. would be a game changer. Yeah. And what's so puzzling to me is, you know, when I got into this, there was a time I was trying to push the slogan, first a principle, then a precedent, because I wanted people to recognize I'm just fighting for a principle that makes all this other stuff possible. And people come back with, oh, Jesus, you're just a one issue, one issue candidate. And I'm like, yeah. When did democracy <laughs> become a single issue? And and the other point, the other part about that is, you know, 50 years ago, when um, the civil rights movement uh, focused on the need to get voting rights reform, because what they realized is they needed to have the vote if they were going to have a chance to do anything else. 
There weren't people who said, whoa, whoa, whoa you know, we shouldn't be worrying about this single issue. We're going to be worried about these other issues. And, you know, when they, if anybody said that, the obvious answer would be, we only get to have those other issues solved if we solve this issue first. So damn right we're going to fight for this issue first. We're going to fight for a democracy first. You know, when guys go off to war, women go off to war, and they fight for, quote, democracy, but do people say, what, are you just a single-issue warrior? Or you're fighting for just for democracy? No, I'm fighting for the most important thing that gives us a chance to solve our problems, because we don't have that right now. We don't have anything close to a representative democracy right now. Yeah, it's, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's a great point. It's, you could apply it again to the suffragettes to say, hey, why do you guys care about right. this one single <laughs> issue about, oh, you, have, you want to vote? Well, why don't you care about the environment? Well, I can't do anything about the environment if I don't have a vote. <laughs> I got to solve that first, right, right. right? And we're in the same exact situation now. Unfortunately, it doesn't apply to just African Americans or just to women. It applies to the whole country. That's We've right. lost our vote. All of us, right? right. So it's like if you think, um, you know, you look at the number of people who actually give just a maximum contribution to a single candidate. You know, people in Washington wouldn't think those are the power brokers, but let's just start with them. That's about 57,000 Americans, which means about 0.02% of America is giving even the maximum contribution to a single candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you think 99.98% of America doesn't have the power that that tiny, tiny fraction does, um, you would think that the 99.98% would say, hell no, we're going to fight for democracy. And in fact, you know, remember exactly a year ago in Hong Kong when they were bringing the government to a standstill, uh, when those students went out and they were protesting, they were protesting because Hong Kong set up the system where 0.02%, literally 0.02%, 1,200 Hong Kong citizens had the power to pick the candidates that the rest of Hong Kong got to vote among. And they said, this is not a democracy. We're not going to let this happen. So they brought the city to a standstill because they were fighting for the right to a democracy. Well, what they were fighting against is exactly what we have. Because this 1,200, this 0.02% who get to pick the candidates, the guys who fund the campaigns, they pick the candidates that the rest of us get to vote among. The only way you get to be a credible member of con a candidate for Congress is if you can raise the money. So the Democratic Party tells you, can you, come, can you guarantee $500,000? Then you're allowed to run for Congress. Um, so the funders pick the candidates that the rest of us get to vote among. And okay, who are the funders? The funders are a completely unrepresentative slice of the tiniest fraction of the 1%. So the idea that we allow that to survive as democracy in America is outrageous. It's outrageous. And nobody in our tradition, from Madison on, would have justified this as the picture of American democracy. And so, of course, the uh, establishment media would be outraged at this suggestion. What do you mean? In, in China, it's the Politburo or, or you know, the Communist Party, and so they, they won't let anybody run uh, that's outside their candidates. Whereas in America, anybody can run. <laughs> now, you can run, but the, the DNC won't call you, will tell people not to have you in the polls or in the debates. And then the media organizations who get a tremendous amount of money from those groups will say you're not, you're excluded. So can you really run? And in fact, now that we're talking it through, you're almost a litmus test to whether we have a real democracy. Can anyone really run? I mean, it's not like you're you're, you're a plumber or you're in construction and you have you know you're a Harvard law professor who's very very well respected, not just in the internet and and in the causes that you've that you're celebrated for, but they know the mainstream media knows the Dem the parties know they know who you are, right? If they don't let you run. By excluding you from polling and debate, etc., that means no, 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 no. That's it. It's over. We're just like the the Chinese communists. Our leaders pick who's allowed to run, and then we have a false choice between those that the establishment handpicked for us. Yeah, you know, um, a mutual friend, Ryan Clayton, uh, was trying to convince me that the way to frame this problem is to say, "Does anybody have a chance to run for office?" And I said, "You know, Ryan." I don't think that's the way to think about it because most people don't think they should be able to run. So I actually, but you know, this whole experience has brought me around to recognize exactly this. Do we have a democracy where anybody other than billionaires or insiders are allowed to run? Because, you know, look, um, if I were a billionaire, there'd be no question I'd be on that debate stage. No question. If I were a senator, I could have spent the last two years running for president 
my salary paid for by the United States Senate while I'm not being a senator, right? Um, but because I'm not an insider or a billionaire, when I run, I get to give up my salary, right? I can't get paid by my university. Um, and I'm not even allowed to be paid by my campaign until two months before the primary. So there's this window, how long can I live on credit cards and savings um, with three kids and a, and, a, and a wife who's a public interest lawyer, um, uh, which, you know, defines my opportunity. So what we thought was, okay, that's tough. It's, you know, that's, you know, it's a difficult thing to do. But if they treat us fairly, we should have a shot. We should have a shot because raising that money in that amount of time demonstrated this is a real issue. I have been in this fight since our mutual friend Aaron Swartz came to me and said, what the hell are you doing fighting for all these issues like internet, copyright, when we have this corrupted system for, uh, that will make it impossible to do it. He convinced me nine years ago to give up my own work to focus on this fundamental issue. And I thought we could have a shot at me saying the same thing that Aaron said to me to those Democrats, saying, what are you talking about? You can't get those things until you deal with this issue first. And I wouldn't be as persuasive as Aaron was, no doubt. But I think we ought to have a chance to make this point clear to the American people that what Aaron said to me is true. We cannot solve these problems until we deal with this issue first. You know, my book, uh, Republic Lost, opens with your um, a quote from you at, uh, at Netroots where you said, there's one issue in America, campaign finance reform. Now, you know, Netroots Nation audience is pretty smart. They weren't confused when you said that to think, whoa, what, we've solved climate change, Cenk? You know, uh, we don't have a problem with income inequality in America? No, they got what you meant, which is there's no way we deal with these other issues till we deal with this issue first. That's what Aaron said to me. That's what I'm trying to say on this debate stage. And that's in a real sense what the insiders don't want said on a debate stage. Yeah, so it turns out there's two layers to fixing free and fair elections. We thought there was one layer. If you got elected, there is a that you could insist on this reform that it makes institutional change. It turns out there's two layers. Can you even get on a stage? Can yeah. you even be recognized? And that is the first step in whether we have free and fair elections. Are they fair? Are they fair? Or are they only open to the incredibly wealthy and the incredibly well connected? So uh, now let's get into the nitty gritty of what's going on with your campaign uh, lately. So uh, are they including you in the latest polls ha or are they still have, have a blockade uh, for future debates? Uh, we don't know what the practice is. We've been included in a couple, but not, you know, certainly uh, not the majority anywhere close. We're not even clear what the rules are for the second debate yet. So, you know, we're, we're my staff is talking to staff at DNC to try to figure out um, exactly what you know the rules are going to be, so we know what we at least have to be fighting for, aiming for. Um, but you know, it's incredible obscurity. Um, you know, our mutual friend, um, a Republican, uh, um, uh, Buddy Romer, um, kind of experienced a little bit of the same of this four That's years right. ago. Yeah. When as a Republican, you know, each time he crossed the line, um, they first said you needed one percent. He got one percent. Then they said you need, I think, five percent. He got that. And then they said you needed to have raised. $500,000 in the prior six weeks. Now, Buddy, unlike me, um, was running a campaign where he said, I'm not going to take anything more than $100 from anybody. So he said, what do you tell, you know, my whole campaign is about the money. You can't tell me I got to give up my core principle in order to be able to run. And they said, Buddy, it's just the rules. Um, so what we're fearful of is that, you know, this is going to be an evolving standard, always the bar right beyond where, you know, um, uh, it's possible for me to be there. It, you know, it's funny because we just said billionaires and insiders, but Buddy was an insider. He was a congressman and he was a governor, right? You can't get any more legitimate than that, right? And they were still like, no, you believe in getting money out of politics. Yeah. They even feared. if you're an insider, even if it doesn't matter who the hell you are. Right. Well, they feared. <laughs> it turns out billionaires have more power than the insiders because they feared he would do what Donald Trump did. They mm -hmm. feared he would get on that stage. And, you know, Donald Trump is a clown, Buddy Romer. Is a serious poli uh, you know, po uh, political person who is the best debater I have ever seen. So he would get on that stage, he would rip those people apart because of the influence of money. The way Donald Trump did when he said, Look, I, I own all of you guys. I own, all of I own Hillary Clinton. She comes to my wedding because I give her money. Like he said what they didn't want Buddy Romer to say. But what was so valuable about what he said, I mean, like we could go on and we should go on about the million other things he said, which are horrible. But the valuable thing about what he said, is he made it credible on the Republican side 
for people to begin to acknowledge the corruption that we know 80% of the Republican blaze already believes is there. That's right. And so I, I realized in the beginning, again, I was confused because DNC, in my opinion, is clearly working on behalf of Hillary Clinton. I mean, she is the establishment. Um, they view her as a front runner. That's why they don't want to have too many debates. Uh, they can go cry me a river about what, no, no, that's categorically untrue. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. So then I figured, well, you're a progressive candidate. You know, they might think, hey, you might take votes away from Bernie Sanders. Maybe we should let this guy in. So I was a little puzzled as to why Hillary's camp wouldn't want you in. And then I realized, oh, if you're on the debate stage, who takes the most money in politics and who's going to get most embarrassed by the questions, the hard questions that you'd be asking? And the answer is clearly Hillary Clinton. Mm. So, I mean, I don't know to what degree you know or don't know, but how much is the DNC in bed with Hillary Clinton? I think the view is that um, you know the people selecting the DNC were selected to guide this through to the place where she would be the nominee. Um, you know, and in a certain sense, I get that. <laughs> She's paid uh, her dues. She's yeah. suffered ridiculous uh, attacks, partisan attacks. This Benghazi commission right now is another example of the most ridiculous government money being spent for a political attack on her. There is nothing there to be attacking her about, but they go on and on. It's just like the whitewater fight, you know, all of that. Um, I understand in some sense, in some deep justice sense, you'd say, okay, fine, she's entitled and we're gonna let this happen. She's got the biggest war chest, the ability to pull together the money we'd need to defeat the Republicans. That's, I get why they would do that. Uh, and, and in fact, when we first started talking about this, we had some calls with people inside the DNC um, who said, yeah, they should love you being up there because they'll think you'll just strengthen the opportunity for um, uh, Hillary to be nominated. But I, I actually think, you know, it's not just Hillary. Uh, uh, you know, Bernie has not said, Leslie got to be on that stage. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, in, in, you know, a lot of people on Twitter are like, yeah, Bernie, you ought to be supporting the idea that Lessig should be on that stage, right? Because, um, you know, in some sense, uh, what I'm saying, of course, is the thing that's closest to Bernie. But what I'm saying is something that Bernie's not yet willing to say, which is, look, America, we don't have a democracy until we fix this corrupted system. And it's not just the money in politics. It's all the ways in which we don't have a representative democracy. And we've got to fight for that. He's not willing to talk about that. Uh, we've primed him. I pushed him. You know, after I got into this race, Politico received a memo that I had, uh, I had written for Bernie. Um, they received it from the Bernie campaign because I didn't give it to them. Um, and in that memo, I had said, Bernie, you know, we were talking about what the position should be that he takes on, on, on money and politics. And I said, you know, you, this is the right amendment to be supporting and um, this is the right uh, small dollar public funding you ought to be supporting. But what you've got to do more than any of that is you've got to convince the American people they need to do this first because if you don't, then when you get to the general election, it's going to be trivial for the Republicans to say, what are you talking about changing you know, single-payer health care? What are you talking about? Um, that's not possible. Uh, and everybody will realize it's not possible, not because we can't afford it, but because we don't have a democracy that would give us what the people actually want. So I said, you need to focus on making this the fundamental issue. Um, and their answer was, no, we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to do, like every other political campaign, we're going to go out and promise the moon. Um, and my own view is, look, I want the moon. I want to get to the moon. But I, I think there's something, it almost feels like a moral issue to me. You know, if you continue this game, this charade of fantasy politics, you're responsible for the charade of fantasy politics. If you're not willing to stand up and say, look, America, we don't have a democracy and we got to fix this, then you are in part causing the fact we don't have a democracy and it's not going to get fixed. So, so, and one part of me is like, I love what you're saying. Another part of me is like, God damn it. How the hell is this that yet again we're having an election where we're pretending we have a democracy? How is that possible after Obama? Like these kids that are rallying to Bernie, you know, maybe they weren't there eight years ago when you and I were there watching this amazing man get elected, you know, for. For, uh, in 2007, 2008, up until April of 2008, he said again and again, if we don't take up the fight to change the way Washington works, 
then real change, change that will make a lasting difference in the lives of ordinary, ordinary Americans, will keep getting blocked by the defenders of the status quo. That is a precise quote. That's what he said again and again and again. But what did he do when he got down there? Forgot that he needed to take up the fight. Didn't take up the fight. So do we have any change in the system? Zero. He didn't even try. He didn't even propose a bill. He didn't even talk about proposing a bill that would change the system. So, so my point is, there is, there's a moral question here, a moral question. How do you run for president of the United States in 2016 and not make this the fundamental issue? What, how do you justify pretending that you know, all we have to do is to elect another Superman, right? Because look, whether it's Superman or Superwoman, Washington is Krypton. And when Superman and Superwoman walks into Krypton, they lose their power. So I don't care whether this is the most powerful Superman in the world, Bernie, or Superwoman in the world, Hillary. I don't care what powers they seem to have when the American people listen to them and get all rallied up there. When they get to Washington, they will have no power unless they rally America to the idea we have to fix this goddamn democracy first. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement gets criticism from the Fox News and the right wing all the time for, uh, hey, you should say all lives matter, right? Um, now, I don't want to get into that. That's uh, they're trying to misdirect people. Yes. Okay. But in this case, it, I, I love the conversation we we're having earlier about how uh, women were writing, fighting for their right to vote because that was the only issue for them. They couldn't participate in the process if they didn't win on this issue. Same for the civil rights movement, right? So in this case, all votes matter <laughs> is is the right slogan, right? In that sense, right? Uh, all of our votes have been taken away through gerrymandering, through money in politics, through this uh, completely corrupt system. We, if we don't fix that first, we can't have it. I, I know we've said it many times, but you're right. I have a quote from President Obama in my pocket. I keep it with me all, all the time when he said, uh, I don't want to just play the same old Washington game a little better. I want to change the way the game is played. Right. And then he got into Krypton and I mean, remember Obama used to have the Superman, you know, drawings of him and the outfit and everything. He got into Krypton, Washington, and didn't do one thing about the way the game is played. Right, right, exactly right. So, okay, so we all know it. Okay, the final couple of things is about. But the let's campaign. let's not drop the Black Lives Matters point for a minute. I think it's really important. The first uh, campaign stop I had was in Ferguson. I spent three hours in a basement room with about fifty of the Ferguson activists, listening to them tell the story about what it's like to be you know, in that context in Ferguson as an African American. And what I think the meaning of Black Lives Matter is, um, you know, people are focusing on the black part. <laughs> the thing to focus on is the lives part. You know, when you have a system of fundamental inequality, what that does is systematically disempower people. And in America, to be disempowered as a black person means it's not just that you're not getting roads built or that, that ambulances take longer to get to, uh, to an emergency. It's that your life is not respected so that you are actually uh, risking your life to be a black person driving in certain areas because we have institutionalized this idea of inequality so deeply in America. Um, Ferguson is like an amazing example of how they've structured their um, uh, tax system to basically tax through fines. It's taxation through citation. Um, and police officers aren't police officers, they're tax collectors. So you, 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 know, you park your car, you get a, a traffic violation, you don't pay that uh, parking uh, fine um, on time, you get a fine on top of that. You don't pay that in time, you get an arrest warrant out for you. You are, you know, you're facing $500 because you know, and these are not people who have $500 in their pocket. So they've just decided in this county that the simplest way to raise money is to tax the least empowered political group because what are they going to do? They're going to elect a candidate to overturn that decision by the political power. This is just the manifestation of the inequality that this campaign ought to be about. And if we could have a campaign where we actually talk about equality as the solution to the corruption of our problem, we could stand with our black brothers and sisters and say, yes, what you're saying is just the most profound 
instantiation of this fundamental problem. It is the one we have to attack first, I completely agree, but it's the same problem that we all face. We don't have a democracy. The idea there isn't second-class citizens in America, it's kind of a joke, right? We have this rhetoric, this historical rhetoric, there are no second-class citizens in America. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? It is defined as a system that creates second class. It's not. We've got business class and then we have second class. That's the rest of us. And until we find a way to rally people to fight that, we're not going to get anything. And until we have democratic candidates who are even willing to say that, we're not going to get anything. And not one of them is saying that now. Uh, ironically, the conservatives worry about a tyrannical government. But there is a tyrannical government that says, I'm going to turn my police officers into tax collectors, but they're going to be able to do it with a gun, right? <laughs> and that is what we have. That's what they and have. And there you have it. And yeah. then they, of course, ironically turn around and back that system, mm -hmm. right? No, it's happening before your eyes. But now we're all black, right? We're, what blacks in America faced for a long time, including today, we all now face because if you're not a billionaire and you're not an insider, yeah. We're all in yeah, let, let's. I mean, in one sense, I completely agree with you. Of course, we are all in that sense unequal. Um, you know, but of course, we're not all black in the sense that you and I don't worry about teaching our son how he needs to deal with a police officer when he gets stopped. Like, if you're an African American father and you don't teach your child how to deal with a police officer, that is malpractice as a father. But you know, I don't need to worry about that with my kid. Why? Because my kid is white. My kid is white. And so, um, in in one sense, that's right, and we ought to we ought to rally people to recognize that. But we can't forget you know, the absurd history in America of this fight to achieve equality on the basis of race, which is the biggest stain in our history. And you know, we still are nowhere close, nowhere close to addressing that uh, yeah. adequately. As much as they have disempowered us, blacks continue to oh be disempowered God. even more. That's so, exactly. of course, that's true. All right. So finally. Um, What's next for the campaign? Uh, so you're fighting this fight to, to get in. And I mean, I don't know if the, we should do hashtag let less again. <laughs> you know? no, it's a big hashtag let lessing debate. That's, that's yeah, that's I mean, at a minimum, hashtag let lessing debate, right? Um, but what beyond that? Well, you know, the big question now is whether we can get in the second debate. Um, and that's the big fight we're having right now. And that's all I want. And that's what I want the chance to do, to be able to present this in the Democratic Party. Because I think if it's presented, there's a real chance it moves the election. This principle becomes central. Um, a lot of people are saying, look, if they don't let you run as a Democrat, run as an independent. And, and, and in one you know, sense, this is the last thing I want to do. Um, but there's another part of me that you know, says, well, geez, it turns out there's a second thing Donald Trump said, which I think is right. You know, mm -hmm. Donald Trump, on the one hand, said, Money is corrupting the system. He was right about that. The other thing he said was, if the Republicans won't treat me fairly, then why should I stick with the Republican Party? Well, okay, I think they've treated Donald Trump fairly. I think that guy's gotten <laughs> enough coverage. We spent eight weeks liming the depths of Donald Trump's brain. And as a teacher, let me tell you, it doesn't take eight weeks to understand the depths of Donald <laughs> Trump's brain. So he's gotten fair treatment. Um, but you know, the question is, if they don't treat, they don't allow an outsider in the Democratic Party to stand on that stage fairly, they have an unfair system to, to make that happen, then, then um, you know, what people are saying I think has some argument, has some pressure to behind it. I don't want to be there because I think this is the sort of issue that ought to be raised and argued for in a Democratic uh, primary. And that's what I'm fighting for right now. And you know, Green Party uh, and other independents have said for years and years, decades, the hey, Democratic Party is part of the establishment, oh right? God. And so you're never going to get anywhere within the Democratic Party. Again, you appear to be a litmus test. Are they going to sh uh, treat you with even the modicum of of uh, fairness? And if they don't, then they have announced, okay, we are the Democratic Party, we are the establishment. There will be no alternative voices, and we're done with that. Okay, yeah. you can argue to try to change things policy-wise, because <laughs> we know you can't anyway. Good luck with that, right? But you cannot argue to change the system because the Democratic Party is the system, yeah. right? So we'll see. If they let you in the debates, maybe uh, all those guys were mistaken and the Democratic Party is open to other voices. If they don't, then they made it incredibly clear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the reality. The biggest party in America is none of the above. Um, um, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party both are minorities. Uh, a higher percentage of Americans associate as independent than either of these two. Uh, but we have a political system that basically says if you want to run it as an independent, you know, good luck. Good luck with that. Um, 
because you can't even get on the ballots. You've you got to spend millions of dollars to qualify to get on the ballots. Last election cycle, there was a group called Americans Elect. They spent $50 million trying to build an infrastructure to allow somebody to get onto the ballot. Um, but after spending $50 million, they thought they could get with another 10 or $20 million to being on the ballots for everybody, but for every state, but they weren't absolutely convinced. So the idea that we have a system where the minority parties um, actually decide who is going to be the president, like they give us the choice. Do you support Lenin or Trotsky? You know, and so, you know, people, those of us who don't like either of us, them you know, still have to choose between Lenin and Trotsky, right? Um, they give us that system. The idea that that's uh, acceptable is really quite outrageous. So I, you know, believe in the values of the Democratic Party. Uh, I don't believe in the system that blocks the opportunity for independents to participate uh, just as openly and vigorously. And, and, you know, I was just in D.C. two weeks ago. And when I brought up the idea of, of hey, maybe Lesser could run as an independent if the Democratic Party spits in his face and says we're not going to uh, allow you in. I mean, it's not a personal thing. So it's not about spitting the face as much as it is, well, you're not allowed to get your idea out. Well, then I, I have to have had some outlet for getting my idea out, right? Um, people were like, no, that's outrageous. Conventional wisdom is you can't run as an independent. Then I brought up Bloomberg because everybody's buzzing about Bloomberg possibly running as an independent. They're like, that's wonderful. Why? Because <laughs> he's a billionaire. And since he's a billionaire, he can do whatever he wants, and wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, I don't think they get the plutocracy that they're arguing for. I mean, they, it's in the same conversation. How do you not see it? But they don't see it. So there's only one option left, make them see it, right? Yes. So, all right, uh, campaign uh, website for everybody. Uh, Lessig2016.us, L-E-S-S-I-G, not Doris Lessing, but Lessig, L-E-S-S-I-G, uh, 2016.us. Okay, and look, it's obviously I'm a supporter. We don't hide that here, right? And so I, and I don't, I don't support you, Larry, because uh, you and I go way back, and we had you know lunch together, and I really like you as a person. You're lovely as a person, <laughs> but but I support you because we agree. If we don't get our vote back, if we don't get our democracy back, then the rest is all a joke anyway. And in fact, it's supposed to be. It's designed to be kabuki theater to distract you from the real issue at hand. And you're trying to get people to focus on that issue. For that, I thank you, and I appreciate you coming in. Thanks, Thank Jack. you so much. Yeah.